Sati Sampachanya, this these two words remembering here and now. It's like informing because uh, this is uh, how to integrate mindfulness into uh, ordinary daily life. You don't, you don't particularly need techniques or uh, unique situations or retreats, but to integrate through reflecting, recalling here and now, mindfulness. So then, hopefully, on this uh, particular retreat, we, this, uh, of course, it, it's easy to, to understand the concept and get the idea. But it, to integrate it means to to uh, make it work for you in daily life, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, working, resting at home, in the monastery, on the underground or whatever. And that's why, you know, when we become too attached to meditation techniques or, or concentration practices, then, that, uh, then we think that's the goal of our life. Then, of course, we're dependent on conditions supporting tranquility or lack of stimulation. <clears throat> Uh, quietude. But in, in this way, we can integrate whatever we have to do in life, in whatever position we find ourselves, uh, which is, a, you know, which changes according to other situations, other conditions. So this, this uh, retreat special kind of condition set up but one can't live one's life in a situation like this, as you well know. You have to, you have to uh, retreats like this begin and then they end. <clears throat> and yet, mindfulness is a continuum of reflecting, remembering. Then emphasize it, reflect, observe using the conditions that we're with all the time, such as the body, the breath. Before it becomes in some kind of personal identity, you know. So reflection on the iriabata or the four postures is not, you know, it'd be, we're observing. Just uh, reflecting, remembering this, it's sitting is like this, standing is like this, walking is like this, lying down like this. There are the moving, changing postures of the physical body uh, throughout the day and night. Before it becomes my body, my, my practice, me and mine. So that's like sati sampachanya, this immediate attention before you start claiming it, criticizing it, <clears throat> ignoring it, or whatever, you know, how the 
the sense of a self is so aligned with with uh, out of habit with the, your appearance, with the feelings of pleasure, pain, and that that you experience through the the physical body. So in the you know the ignorant, unawakened individual is never questions. They are their bodies. Their I'm sitting, I'm standing, walking, lying down, my breathing, my anapanasati practice, my jhanas, my attainments, my lack of attainments, my process, my space. So this this possessive pronoun, my, you know, we have sort of committed to owning the conditions that that are happening for us at this moment, and of course that that possessive pronoun you know reinforces the illusion of separateness. So then we we wonder why we suffer. <clears throat> you know, there, there's so much anguish, disappointment, despair in modern life when it is, you know, I don't think so many human beings have ever existed on this planet as there are now and where the, you know, we kind of live in a, even as alms mendicants in a rather, uh, you know, high standard of, of uh, conditions. Like here at this monastery we have Shelter for the night, very good shelter for the night, robes, excellent food, and uh, good medical treatments. Dhamma vinya, everything is in terms of you got the whole package, that's all you need, and yet one can suffer enormously here at Amravati. <clears throat> So that's why, you know, when you, you contemplate what is necessary, according to this tradition, the Buddha's allowances from, you know, the ancient India, this tradition, tradition is, is a convention that, that uh, was uh, established by the Lord Buddha, Gotama, 2,553 years ago in India. And if there were no tradition, then then his uh, the teaching would have been lost in time, like the like Bajeka Buddhas or enlightened individuals have insight and understanding of uh, and realize ultimate reality, but they. They have. They never established anything other than, uh, you know, uh, maybe they never teach anyone or tell anyone, or only a few close disciples. And when they die out, then it's lost in the as time passes, civilizations arise and cease, conditions change.
So that like this Theravada tradition is has survived because it's it is established according to what we call Vinaya. So that is uh, that is something to respect, and uh, you know we align ourselves according to those limitations, traditional limitations. In the West, you know, like, you know, most people, you know, that I meet, <clears throat> Europeans, Americans, and so forth, they, they like Dhamma, but not Vinaya. You know, the Dhamma is all about letting go, and and it's uh, full of metta and karuna, and mudita, upeka, and it's inspiring. In fact, most of us were became, you know, became interested in Buddhism through Dhamma, not through Vinaya. <clears throat> and then Lung Po Cha's conundrum years ago, to me, you know, when I was still junior monk, he said, you must be confused because Dhamma is all about letting go and Vinaya is about clinging, attachment. <laughs> and, uh, of course I was, I found it very confusing. Because, you know, in the kind of dualistic focus of, of the mind, you know, why should you cling to Vinaya? You should let go of everything. And uh, just Dhamma's enough. So then, Lumpur said, well, when you resolve that, seeming conflict, then you're okay. So in this, this, you know, that's what I, I'm trying to point to, is how the relationship to Dhamma and Vinaya. Like Vinaya, Vinaya without Dhamma, it just increases, you know, the sense of, of uh, we just get conditioned by precepts and rules, conventions. <clears throat> so if we don't have the Dhamma, we just practice Vinaya, it would increase the sense of a self as being good samana, bad samana, strict, lax, right, wrong, pure, impure. And in Dhamma without Vinaya, we have no no convention to use. So we just, you know, we have, we might be able to function on our own independently, but relating to the wider society, to family, to group, to community, if there's no common conventional boundary, then it's each one for themselves my Dhamma, my life, my practice. But in, uh, you know, the establishment of Sangha is, uh, like, really consider that Sangha is Supatipano, Ujupatipano, Yayapatipano, Samijipatipano. This is, this is uh, individuals practicing in the right way, directly, properly. 
So this word batipano is batibat, is practice. It's not just holding views about Buddhism or memorizing all the chants or things, but it's batipata, supatipata's good practice. Now this is not about whether I practice rightly or you practice, or I practice, I'm a better practitioner than you are. That is foolish, isn't it? Not about monks and nuns or lay people or anything like that. It's about supatipano. So sangha is impersonal. It's not about personalities. It's not about, it's, it's not a, a term of identity with a convention, but it's practicing in the right way, directly, insightfully. So in, in, the, in the structure of Vinaya, then you've got these senior relationships, seniority, the Bhikkhu Sangha was established by the Buddha. So that was the, the senior in position of structure, of Vinaya. Structure is Bhikkhu Sangha in this convention is senior because it was established first. Now it's not a statement that it's better in any way. It's just a matter of fact of seniority. One one is established first and then what follows would be second, third, fourth. Now we can take seniority as in a personal way. <clears throat> and that's what I see happening a lot in this community where we we are strongly identified with with uh, our seniority. And that's what I'm trying to point to, to see this see the suffering of that identity. And the Bhikkhu Sangha isn't about men and, uh, you know, and uh, being superior to women. It's not about that. It's just an expedient structure that happened in the tradition. And yet in modern life, uh, the feminists and that tend to see it as as men dominating as patriarchal and the, these kind of words you hear uh, being uh, used as a criticism because uh, in terms of modern values modern idealism uh, it seems to be uh, going against the ideals of of uh, modern democracy and and equality and personal rights, human rights, individual rights. <clears throat> like like the word patriarchy tends to be a pejorative word at this time. You know, like if it's patriarchal, then it's tyrannical or bad. <clears throat> but any of these things can be good or bad according to how they operate, isn't it? Matriarchies, 
can be good or bad, patriarchies, trying to have a completely get rid of hierarchy, you know, just a communist, total, totally equal communistic system, uh, you know, based on each on individual rights and personal freedom and everybody's equal, then that, it's hard to operate, you know, in any practical way from that level of equality. <clears throat> So it's, uh, you know, you can see what happened in the Soviet Union, where this idea of Marx, Karl Marx, communism, everybody's equal, and yet inevitably uh, tyranny crept in because of the nature of conditioned phenomena, survival of the fittest, of power, of ignorance and power and personal uh, karma, that are not equal. You know, our personal karmic patterns are not, we're not, we aren't all the same. We aren't like tin soldiers off the assembly line. We're a collect, collection of, of uh, individuals with very, uh, you know, different kind of karmic tendencies, experiences, memories. Conditions. So that's where, in the developing the wisdom faculty, you know, the discerning faculty, on the critical, just the critical mind is about this is better than that, or this is more or less, good, bad, the best, the worst. This is about conditioned phenomena. Condition phenomena is all about quality and quantity, a lot or a little, right and wrong. These are qualities that we project onto conditions. And that's the thinking mind, isn't it? The thinking mind operates like that. <clears throat> if, you know, so you, you, you know, you, that's just the way thought operates. When we attach to thinking, then we're caught in this dualistic approach to life. And then we might want unity, harmony, equality, uh, unconditioned love, as, you know, as ideals that we, we long for. But in the nitty-gritty of human experience, we have to operate within the limitations we find ourselves in, uh, personal, physical, social. Also, to, to reiterate, the fact that idealism is not wisdom, how things should be if everything was perfect, is not about wisdom. It's not discerning, it's just saying everything we should be, everything should be fair, is an ideal, isn't it? We should all respect each other. Uh, we shouldn't be cruel, we should be kind. 
and on the, we call we, we we're all equal. There's nobody better or worse than anyone else. These are ideals. Because on the thinking level, we can we can think of how things should be. You know, if they were perfect, uh, you, including yourself and and uh, and. Uh, people we live with, the society we're in. We can always imagine, create an ideal, you know, how we would like the United Kingdom to be if it were perfect. <clears throat> or any other country. Or the world. Now wisdom is discerning. And this is, of course, this is, a, this is what we lack in modern life, is wisdom. Why the the conflicts go on and on and on, and they, nobody knows how to resolve them really, because it's we're just using uh, ideas, ideals, intimidation, prejudices, power. We're easily corruptible, as you know, to easily, you know, to. Vanity through self-interest, through personal ambition. We can intimidate and threaten and bully each other. So they, like the discerning ability is nearly discerning knowing the difference, knowing that the conditions are like this. And the unconditioned is this. That's, that, that's discernment. It's not saying, it's not becoming dualistic like the unconditioned is better than the conditioned. As soon as we think of it as better, then what happens when you I'm, I abide in the unconditioned and I don't care about the conditioned world anymore. It's still a, a, delusion, a delusion, isn't it? Taking sides with the unconditioned and then assuming the conditions are somehow anicca dukkanata, just let go of them or get rid of them, is annihilation. That's what annihilationism is. You know, just get rid of it all. And then eternalism is where, is the ideal world where everything is, everybody's happy, everybody's beautiful, everybody's equal. The lions uh, are best friends with lambs and the big fish are compassionate to the small ones and everything is just ginger peachy. <clears throat> you know, forever like eternal happiness is uh, is the opposite so it it gets in you know when i was brought up as a christian that's how we assumed heaven would be where we would live happily ever after with god and jesus as uh, individual souls in a beautiful full permanently pleasant uh, totally perfect heaven. Now that's, you know, even though I sound like I'm making fun of it, that is, 
you know, that's, uh, that's idealism, and that's the thinking mind. The thinking mind does that. And hell then becomes its opposite, a, a place of total pain, unmitigated ugliness, pain and misery forevermore. <clears throat> now, in discerning, it's not a, you know, it doesn't have any quality to it of right, wrong, good or bad. And then the, then the uh, gift of a human birth and the Buddha's teaching is that, that within the, the limitations we find ourselves in with our own individual karmic conditioning, whether it's male or female or healthy or sickly or whatever, conditions, whatever your karma you're experiencing, you can reflect on it, which is not judging it or, uh, uh, you know, criticizing it or praising it. It's noticing, discerning condition phenomena like this. So that's why in the Vipassana practices, it's sankarani cha, all conditions are impermanent. It's, it's a way of looking at condition phenomena that isn't isn't making any value judgments about, just noticing it is like this. And then the ability to notice, to observe conditioned phenomena. Because we discern it, it's it's changingness, it's it's unsatisfactoriness, it's uh, non-self. And that which is observing, mindfulness in other words, So you recognize, you don't, you know, you don't find it as an object. You are this when you trust, when you totally trust in awareness. Recognize it. It's like this. Alert attention, pure presence, consciousness informed with, with wisdom. Then within this, this, uh, multifaceted, complicated network of conditioned phenomena that we have to live in, we have a perspective on it. <clears throat> We're not just helpless victims caught in a sticky web of fate, like it seems, like it can easily seem if, if one doesn't discern, if one doesn't use wisdom in one's life, you're just kind of stuck with what you have. which can be seen always in very personal terms of how things should or shouldn't be and, uh, you know, your own tendencies towards uh, just resignation to misery or trying to conquer the world or blaming, always blaming somebody else or something else for one's unhappiness. You see, not, you know, you don't notice in the, in the, the people really developing wisdom. It's just a rare kind of. And yet we've got this, you know, Buddhism's been around for 2,553 years, so it's not like a, you know, sudden, in a new, new discovery. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? The Buddha's teaching is, is, uh, it's not a kind of, 
kind of lost in in mystical terms of ancient Indian philosophy. That's why it's, it, you know, it's so respected at this time because it's about the nature of the mind and how to, how to cultivate this awareness so that one, one is this awareness rather than all these complicated changing conditions that we tend to see ourselves through. The state of your physical body, your emotional tendencies, uh, and all the complicated cultural problems, attitudes, and that of modern life. So that's why uh, you know I keep emphasizing this. Like the third noble truth is the realization of the unconditioned. Neuroda, where, you know, because this is where, where things cease, where everything ceases in this present moment. Where the ego, the sense of yourself, ceases now. Where, you know, you, you see through your, your own assumptions about you are this physical body and this personality, where the personality ceases and there's awareness of presence and absence. It's discerning when there is a sense of a self and when there's not. Atta and anatta. Attachment and non-attachment, suffering and non-suffering. Now, that's quite amazing, isn't it? That little creatures like us can, can actually discern that. within this vast universe, this mysterious, rather terrifying universe we live in, with all its dynamic forces and powers that affect us, and we don't know how or why or what's happening most of the time to us. The alignment of the stars, the sun and the moon, the who knows what, you know, because we, we're kind of stuck within the limitations of this physical body and its position in the society, and its identities, and its assumptions. And, you know, out of fear and ignorance, we, we tend to bind ourselves to limitations. We only want to see so much, you know, protect ourselves, live in a, in a kind of fortress, protect us, you know, where we can feel safe. And we don't have to know too much, but just you know, distract ourselves with world gossip, pribbles and prabbles. <clears throat> Material objects and whatnot. Uh, this is, this is, uh, you know, we just want to live our lives with our families in a sense of security and safety and trust and how the ideal world. And yet, you know, in this past century, there's been so many changes, unpredictable events disrupting whole societies, continents, and that being, you know, refugees and, and revolutions seem to, to haunt the human consciousness. We're never contented 
they're always, you know, revolting or criticizing or trying to control. We're ambitious. We're frightened. And then the environmental problems, the greenhouse effect, climate change and all the rest we live in, you know, we've got all these perceptions now to deal with. You know, 30, 40 years ago, I never thought about climate change, really. It wasn't particularly, uh, you know, in the, in the consciousness of most human beings. I think, you know, when I first heard it, it was like, a, I think in the 1950s, uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was a kind of precursor of that. <clears throat> I remember when it became quite a, a famous book, in the, I think it was in the, in the 1950s. Now the opportunity we have here is, uh, is this cultivation, this discerning. And, and it's very precisely stated in, the, in these uh, teachings of the Buddha. It's not a kind of fuzzy, theoretical kind of uh, philosophy. It's very practical. And so this, this uh, you know, the supatipano, ujupatipano, this is here and now, direct. You know, it's not about practicing now to get the result in the future. They say santitiko dhamma, you know, santitiko akaliko, Apparent here now is not, if you practice hard, you'll see it sometime if you're lucky, if your karma allows you to. That's the personal take on, on these teachings. You know, how we, we grasp, uh, Dhamma teachings and, and, and see them and, and that grasping out of our own personal, uh, habits distort them. So they become merely my, maybe intellectual concepts or some kind of philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, rather than Dhamma, Santitiko Akaliko, apparent here and now, timeless. Ehi Prasiko, come and see, wake up right now. And Upanayako, leading inward, you know. Don't looking, you're not looking outward for the truth or for the Dhamma, some kind of thing you're going to find in India. <clears throat> or Bajitang Waitidapo Vinyuhi, to be experienced individually by the, through wisdom. Now, wisdom is not the prerogative of the bhikkhu sangha. It's not like we have a kind of more opportunity for wisdom than the siladharas do. <clears throat> so I mean that that might make you know that would be personal interpretation or prejudice. But wisdom is you know this is a this is the this is possible for all of us because of the human birth 
because we're human beings. And then there's two genders to human beings, male and female, as we all know, and then we identify with that. It becomes our obsession. Our modus operandi, we're always coming from this perception or from seeing uh, bhikkhus always uh, in terms of of male and silatara as female. On a conventional level, you know, the aim of the vinaya is to, to cultivate this vinaya structure in order to let go of it so that we aren't blindly attaching to it out of ignorance. It's merely functional and a way of, you know, of uh, living and relating to each other in a respectful way that's non-violent, moral, and encouraging for meditation, for investigation of Dhamma. And then the alms mendicant practice is to be content with, you don't, you don't, you're not, after you're not spending enough trying to get the best conditions or requisites. So contentment with with uh, the basic allowances. And also living in a society like this as a, not being a revolutionary force, not criticizing it, not, you know, uh, being caught up in our own personal political attitudes or desires to change everything. We're living, you know, we're a, uh, we, the aim of the Buddhist Sangha is to live in society, you know, so we're tied to the society through the necessity of, of food, shelter, robes, and medicines. But our relationship to the society is, is not uh, criticizing or identifying with it, but um, giving opportunities for people living in this society to hear the Dhamma, to offer alms, give dana, things like this. So that, like Amravati, its function in in England is it's a f- geographical location in Hertfordshire, a play a physical location, but it's a place to encourage. You know, people. We're not. Missionaries try to convert Englishmen to uh, Buddhism by giving opportunity for whoever is interested to come and listen to Dhamma, to practice, to give dana, to reflect on life. So they say that arahant is a blessing to the society. Arahant is, is not about personalities. A field of merit. If if this planet, if there were no arahants, if there were no enlightened in human individuals on this planet at this time, it would be much worse than it is. You know, the things would be probably be much much worse than this. And so, you know, this is, and yet, you know, we can still see arahants in terms of. This monk is, and this this one isn't. And are there any uh, 
female arahants, and then we get caught up in views about this and that, and and it just goes around into into that vortex of samsara, speculation, opinion, and view. So it's it's not about becoming arahants, but these words are you know an arahant. That what that implies is a human individual without any self-view, without any ignorance or attachment to conditions. And so each one of us has to, you know, observe the, what attachment is. You know, because we, you know, out of ignorance we are attached to views, opinions, uh, memories, physical body, etc. So now we're looking, we're investigating. Attachment is like this. Ubadana is this way. And non-attachment is like this. You discern the difference between attaching to con- and letting go. It's not a annihilation, a destruction of conditions. It's no longer just being helplessly bound, stuck into conditioned phenomena out of ignorance. So my intention in establishing this monastery was to provide That what is necessary for investigating and uh, developing the Samana life. And so that is, that's the intention. And then uh, in terms of how I see it, that's, we've accomplished this. This is uh, Dhamma, Vinaya, and four requisites are here. That's perfect. And then, then from that, reflect, I'm not saying that it's ideal according to what personalities would like it to be, but it is, it is, you know, that this is enough. This is all you need. You don't need the best qualities, the best of everything. And uh, and get everything that you feel is is right and proper at this time, but it's uh, it's a way of discerning. It's humbling. It's it's uh, helps us to let go of sakyaditi silabhatabhamasamichikicha, the three fetters. So you know those. You who live here, your always, you know, emphasis is on observing these three fetters, so that they're no longer our attachment to them. Is, is, is we release that habitual clinging and attachment to views, opinions, sense of a separate self, identity with the structure, with seniority. We have our duties, you know, Vinaya is all about duties that we have towards each other. So we, 
you know, a relationship is then based on duties rather than on privileges. Because duties isn't just one way, is it? It's senior to junior, seniors have duties. It's quite structured and, and, and easily referred to in the Vinaya Pitaka, and then junior to senior. And it is expedient means. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's to be used for liberation, not for, it's not an end in itself. And it's, it's, a, it's a, and it is a, an, a, an, a tradition that's been carried through time. Unfortunately, we still have this tradition. And, and it works, you know, we can still live here in totally modern European country like this without any great deprivation. I think, we, you know, we have, we have an abundance of requisites. So, you know, contemplate. There's the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the four requisites, And then you can see your own discontentment, you know. Well, I don't particularly like this, I don't like that, too many people come here. I don't like patriarchal forms, I don't like this, don't want that. And then we can see, you know, that our discontentment. You know, so it's like, like, I want Amravati to be, you know, I'm trying to make it into some something more suitable to the modern time, is, uh, you know, I can see that if I have such a, a thought going through my mind. Or my own, you know, feelings, <clears throat> emotional reactions to the place, to the individuals in it. Because <clears throat> you can't, you know, you can't make yourself content on the Sakya Ditti level. You can pretend you're content, but that's not the point. I'm not trying to act content, but to see the suffering of being discontented. So that's why we, the reference to Dhamma Vinaya for requisites, good enough. Now that is, I mean, that's, it's, you know, so you're content with that. You're developing the sense, that's all I need. Then the rest, your own feelings, ambitions, views, opinions, pressures from society, and all that. We can, we can observe how things affect us, how intimidated we are by certain aspects of modern life or attitudes of the lay community and how, you know, or our own personal reactions to, to patriarchal forms or masculinity or power or femininity. You know, these are all grist for the mill so we can be the observer rather than the owner. We're celibate community. So the, 
the sexual uh, tendencies that we all have can be reflected on. You know, so we we're not trying to to suppress or judge it, but to observe that sexual desire rises and ceases. Our own particular karmic tendencies, sexual tendencies, then can be seen in terms of conditioned phenomena rather than as personal problems or personal attachments. So our relationship to each other is non-sexual, you know, it's a celibate relationship and it's non-personal. And so like in the sense of the bhikkhu sangha uh, giving the bhappacha to the, the uh, siladhara, this is a structure not through because it's of seniority in going in a traditional form. And the reason why I'm, you know, because I won't be here much longer, so I don't want it to become personal, like it's too easy to see me as your preceptor, your teacher, Ajahn Sumato, and uh, and then uh, kind of um, see the rest is in, in your own various personal emotional reactions to to this monk or this nun or this agarika or whatever. And we're not encouraging that, but to develop the sense of, of katanyu, gratitude for being given the, such an opportunity for practicing Dhamma Vinaya as alms mendicants. So this sense of katanyu is sense of gratitude rather uh, to 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 the bhikkhu sangha because it's the one that the, the senior in terms of the structure and they they the bhikkhu sangha want has agreed to give bapacha to to uh, miriam and soledad on the 28th so this is this is, and you say Ajahn Sumato has, then it becomes too much aligned with me as a person. And the bhikkhu sangha can be just seen as a bunch of blokes that you may have very strong views about. But see the, see the, see that it's not that way. That no matter what the individuals are like in the sangha, whether they're monks or nuns, you know, their individual qualities or personalities or virtues or problems. This is the karma of individuals trying to work out their karma, but, but in terms of structure, it's, a, it's not a personal structure. Sangha is not, a, a, you know, a personal thing. Not emphasize personality or charisma or ability of an individual. Now this is, this is going against the whole force of um, modern life where we give so much importance to my process. I'm practicing, I'm give, going through my 
my process and and my rights, human rights. Individuality is given great significance, you know, as you know, to assert yourself, be self-asserting, and and uh, prove yourself. Is the culture that we we're living in, and this is, and that, and this structure then is to put that into perspective where we can see it. This whole sense of I have to prove myself, self-assertion, and and any uh, ideals I might hold in regard to that, as well as my own fears about you know not being good enough, not being. Uh, as good as somebody else, or being, you know, having feeling uh, inferior in some way. So supatipano isn't sort of self-aggrandizing, you know, saying I'm just as good as anybody else, I can do it, kind of thing. It's not like boosting yourself up if you're feeling inferior. But it's if you feel inferior, feeling inferior is like this. It's a condition in consciousness that you can. Observe your relationship to such feelings is knowing, not clinging, not identifying, not denying or getting rid of it. So it's, uh, to me, this is, uh, you know, a great. You know, to me, I have a tremendous katanyu for to the Buddha, to the historical Buddha, <clears throat> to Gotama Buddha. You know, because uh, I feel very privileged to have come across such a teaching and being able to put it into practice in my lifetime coming from a totally different social milieu and religious background and having such an opportunity. That's one of the advantages of this time is that, you know, it's so available. Now, one time, you know, nobody knew anything about Buddhism in, in Europe or, you know, just, just one of those funny religions in Asia where they worship golden images and things like bow down to shiny brass figures. And, and you know, so we, you know, we didn't know anything about it. Now it's, it's, uh, it's in the consciousness of all over the world, the Buddhist teaching. And uh, there's so much available, it's uh, probably too much. It's a glut of information. <laughs> Anybody who does a 10-day retreat usually writes a book about Buddhist meditation. <laughs> but it is in the inner, and, and that's why here, uh, you know, trying to keep this, the, the structure here together so that it isn't, we're not being... Uh, kind of intimidated and thrown about by all the the attitudes and views and opinions that Buddhists have about what's right and wrong and good practice, what's Dhamma and what isn't. And if the, you know, if you don't, um, you don't have to agree with me. But if you don't agree 
and you don't like this form, then there's no reason to to stay here. You know, it's not a matter of this is the only option there is. There's plenty of variations on the theme, just in England alone. You know, so it it's not really the sole source of Buddhist wisdom, but this is uh, this is one way. This is a traditional form, and that's. Uh, and that's what's on offer here is the, to give that opportunity for those that have faith and, and confidence and want to try it out, practice it and see, and judge the results. But judging isn't about how good a practitioner I am personally, but in seeing, discerning, suffering and non-suffering. Then my own Practice, you know, as I practice, I discern it. Those four noble truths. I've, as you well know, I've, I've investigated backwards, forwards, upwards, downwards, sideways, for forty years or more. So it's like you know, taking something and really, you know, using that in in you know, to to see suffering and its causes. To get so familiar, so clear about the causes of suffering and the cessation of suffering through, not through having views or opinions, but through seeing this, uh, you know, how I create suffering through attachment and how to let go of the causes of suffering is through mindfulness. And Bhavana, developing, cultivating through right understanding, samaditi, in one's daily life. Now, only you can know that. You know, it's not, you know, it's a bhajatang metidapo inyuhi. You have to know that. You have to see for yourself, not your Ajahn Sumato says, or I don't believe he really knows anything at all. You know, views personal views or opinions about me can be seen as that. They are, you, you feel, feel this way or you have these doubts or these beliefs. I pref, you know, encouragement is for you to be the knower rather than the, the one who's deciding whether I'm right or wrong. So the, the aim is to this encouragement to awaken, to, to, you know, this trust in Buddha Dhamma Sangha isn't, isn't not to, to grasp those concepts, but to put them into practice so that you are this, you, you know, the, this is what your, your refuge, your, this is the, these are the, the words or the conventional, the traditional form which reminds you Apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation leading inwards to be experienced individually by the wise or to be experienced individually through wisdom. Uh,